So just want to find out who was here last week. All right. For those that weren't, I now know who you are. And I will come and get you after the service. No, um, so we're building on the Sermon of the Mount. This is the third week. We have the privilege to go through it. And um, it's really the greatest message ever taught, but it's also one of the ones that's um, the most misunderstood. The passage is misunderstood. The main points have been misunderstood for generations upon generations. And, and, and it's building this idea that Jesus would sit down and gather a group of people around him and start off with some things that seamlessly doesn't, that, that don't make any sense. He starts out with these blessed are those, blessed are those. And, and I said my personal boil down for me is blessed are those who are messed up and know it. For they will inherit the kingdom of God. And, and, and to me, that's me. Thank you, God, that, that I'm broken and messed up. If I didn't know I was a sinner, if I didn't know I need to be saved and I didn't cry out to you, there's no way your grace and mercy would fill me up. Where, where we kind of left off last week, everything kind of builds and rests on verse 20 inside uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and it says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you by no means will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus actually took it a step further and addressed murder and adultery inside this. There is this idea that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders were at the top of the spectrum. Nobody could be better than these guys. And Jesus said, you need to be so much more than that. The word exceeding actually means surpasses. It represents um, a river that just overflows on its boundaries. You can't contain it in any way. Jesus is like, you have to be so much more than that. And what he does in doing that, he levels the playing field because the word of God says um, that your righteousness, right, must exceed that of the Pharisees. But he also says your personal righteousness is like filthy rags. And, and we get into that by looking at murder and adultery. He said, man, you think a murderer is pretty much somebody who just kills anybody? He said, a murderer is one that has hatred in his heart against his brother. And I know so many people say, oh, I'm a good person because I've never murdered anybody. Well, oh, yeah? Have you ever hated anybody? Have you ever looked at anybody in lust? And Jesus says, no, that's, that's committing adultery. He, he, he cuts the legs out of everybody and says, listen, we're all on the same playing field. That word righteousness just means right standing before God. And Jesus lays this foundation that he's going to get into it. The only way to be saved is to really cry out to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus established that the root is the wicked heart, and this is kind of what we've been driving at. God loves a broken and contrite heart, but he understands the wickedness is happening inside the heart. One of the purpose for addressing and sitting down, going through this message, is he's addressing the oral traditions, the, the, the men that were expounding on the law and really perverting it in a way, and we'll get into that. I think what a lot of us need to hear and what I need to hear daily, because this is what I pray in my private life, is that God loves people. He, he, he's just not somebody that creates rules because he's looking to punish people and beat people up. I don't know about you, but I felt that way because I, I lived that way for a long time. But he, he, he's rather looking to be in deep, unbroken relationship with us. That's the whole story of the scripture is God chasing after man. That's the God I serve. That's the God we get to call Father day in and day out. It's God chasing after man. So really between verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 21 and 48, it, 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 it's kind of this idea of how to work out righteousness in your daily life. And Jesus is meticulously going through specific issues of the day. And we're picking up in verse 31, um, which is a real interesting topic for us to pick up on. He says, Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, the words fornication there, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, we just stepped in a hornet's nest, all right? <laughs> just want everybody to get on the same playing field. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dock here for a little bit. It's a really, really important subject to get into. The verses we're going to quote and we're going to look at are not going to be exhaustive. I'm going to give you guys a little bit more information and some books and some other things to read. We're not going to be able to hammer out every single detail in this, but we're going to be very thorough to hit the broad points today. Jesus is addressing a set of scriptures in, in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. 
Um, the highlight for this entire topic is in really Matthew 19. Jesus goes in depth because the Pharisees are trying to trap him, if you read it. 1 Corinthians 7 addresses a lot of this stuff. Romans 7 uh, addresses this. There's about 20 additional verses that, that address divorce directly. And just so you know, there's 38 verses on marriage, and there's multiple more on, on effects of adultery and things that happen throughout Scripture. Um, but many leaders and pastors skip over these verses, actually, because it's, it's, it's very hard to communicate and address these things, right? We live in a broken society, and I think we all understand that, that uh, sin is alive and well in this world, and broken hurt people hurt broken people, right? Um, but there's really four views. And uh, is, is this one, divorce is never permitted in any way, shape, or form. I'm sure if anybody's been around the church, you've heard that view. The other view is that divorce and remarriage are permitted for any reason or for no reason at all. The third view is that divorce is permitted in certain circumstance and remarriage is never permitted. The fourth view is that both marriage and remarriage are permitted under certain circumstances. And uh, we're gonna end on a biblical view tonight uh, based off the scriptures that I've been searching and seeking out day in and day out. But I think anytime we address and we have to talk about marriage uh, and, and divorce and brokenness, we have to rest on the origins of marriage and how that started. Anytime somebody wants to talk, my first counseling session, literally my second day on the job here was someone that was in adultery that came in and was just broken over a situation. And my first three counseling sessions here on staff had to do with marriage, right? Um, but God's covenant with man actually happens before the fall. And I think we forget that. Marriage predates sin coming into this world. There was an origin, a time that, 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 that God looked at man and said, there's no suitable partner for man. Uh, Genesis 2 verse 18 says, and the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone, for I will make him a, helpful, a helper comparable to man. And then in 24, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And we, re we remember that the marriage happened before the fall. Um, we also want to say that man needed a helper, okay? Does everybody understand that? Meaning man was broken and then needed somebody to come along and fix him. Nobody gets that joke? Has anybody here been married before? Okay. That word helper, by the way, because a lot of people look down that, oh, what do you mean I'm a helper? It actually is the same word used for the Holy Spirit. Talk about that for a privilege, ladies. Uh, represents the Holy Spirit in our lives, convicting us day in and day out. Tough crowd tonight. Come on, guys, step up a little bit. Um, so we, what happens is we see marriage in, in a perfect state inside the Garden of Eden. One was to support the other, and they lived in a perfect existence with God. I can just imagine what that was like. Um, but as the fall comes in, and, and it separates, it puts sin between God and man, it puts sin inside the marriage. And the fallout from that was that women get pain in childbirth. By the way, my wife is here with our son. He's three weeks old. This is the first time he's out here tonight. What a great privilege it is, but I got a chance to witness real childbirth literally three weeks ago. I praise God for all you moms out there. I have no idea uh, how this whole thing even happened, but I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. <laughs> but the downside of that was that man was to have dominion over his wife and that she would want to be in that position day in and day out, and then man got the result of toiling day in and day out by the sweat of his brow. Um, but God takes a serious look at marriage right from the beginning and, and, and understanding that this marriage was always supposed to be one. What we also fail to forget is that marriage was always meant to be three, never two. It's always three. God is at the center of the marriage, and he's the one wooing people into relationships, and he's the one that's deciding to be with them, and we believe in the biblical marriage as, as born-again believers. And, and we tend to forget that. I, I know I do from time to time, which is pretty much every morning. Um, but uh, two of the Ten Commandments have to do with marriage directly. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then the tenth one talks about coveting thy neighbor's wife or, or, or stuff, possessions. God takes this seriously. When we look at these specific set, set of verses, we have to understand that, that um, the day the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the scribes were crafting oral traditions to fit their own personal lifestyle. Does that sound like anything? 
It's pretty much what's happening today, right? People take a set of rules or a set of structures and then kind of craft them so it just applies to them in a specific way. And I think the best way we can look at this is the tax loopholes, loopholes, right? Everybody's looking for a way to work it out so it's in our best benefit, right? What Jesus is addressing is literally a very, very, very specific case where the Pharisees uh, were perverting an oral tradition. We're going to look at it right now. It's in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it so you don't have to turn there, but you're more than welcome to. Uh, By the way, I'm I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Uh, Somebody asked me last week, what version do I read out of? It says in verse chapter 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens that she finds and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the later husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as a wife, so the second husband dies, then the former husband who divorces her must not take her back to be his wife, for she has been defiled. She married another man. For that is an abomination before the Lord, that you shall not bring sin into the land which your Lord God has given you as an inheritance. What this is addressing is causing another person to stumble. Can you guys see that? Um, the idea was that during this time frame, anybody, any man could give anybody a, a bill of divorce because the oral traditions were that, that way. And they got so crazy inside this that, that if, if your wife burnt your dinner, it was a reason to give a certificate of divorce. If she talked about you, if she yelled at you in the streets, or if, or if a neighbor heard you uh, raising your voice, they figured out all these ways to get out of something. And what happened is some of these leaders would have 10 or 20 wives by the time but by the time they get down the road. And by the way, it wasn't wrong for them to be with a concubine. It wasn't wrong to, have, to, to, to sleep with a harlot as long as it wasn't a Jewish woman. Do you guys see how perverted this is? They figured out loopholes how to get out of the, of the, basic, the basic bond that God gave to man. Really what happened is inside this, God actually established protection for women. And we know this was a society 2,000 years ago that was always male-dominated, that, that most of the time women didn't have rights. But when you read in the law, there were specific things set aside to make sure that there was protection for the woman, especially inside marriage and especially when it comes to issues of, of, of sexual behavior. There was protections put in right away. Um, and, and, and again, the marriage is always three. And, and, and when we look at this, it, it, it wasn't about divorcing the wife, you also have to understand that there was a separation that has to happen with God in the process. Um, the question that most people want to know when it comes to any of these verses is how does this actually apply to us today? And we have to understand that looking at the context of these verses, we're not looking at them based off how I feel today in 2020. We're looking at them in the context of how they were written and what Jesus was addressing in that day. Does everyone understand that? Super important to always look at the context and the root of Scripture. So the question here wasn't if it, directly here is if the divorce was permissible or not permissible, but it was actually about how they were going about it, right? It was the root about how they were going about things and, and, and really not valuing another person. So like I said, again, divorce is addressed in some of the other scriptures, and we're going to go into that in a little bit. There's a book I'm going to recommend um, when we get into this, and it's by a guy named Jay Adams, and I think it's one of the best books on the subjects that really breaks down case-by-case scenarios. If you guys want to read deeper about divorce and remarriage, um, I, I found it was one of the best out there along with John MacArthur's commentary, but it's called uh, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible by J.E. Adams. And Jay quoted this in one part of the book. He said, God hates divorce. He did not institute it. He only recognizes and regulates it under certain biblical circumstances. And here's the point. Even though God hates divorce because there's a sin behind everybody, every divorce. Does everybody understand that? And, 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 and he hates it because there's a sin behind it and, and, and there's a cause. But here's the other thing. Here's the caution. Not every divorce is sinful. Right? Us as the church, 
become real good stone throwers. Does everybody know what that means? We're really good at blasting other people. I said last week that, that I judge other people based off, their, based off of their actions, and I judge myself based, based off my intentions, right? So everybody else, I'm holding to a standard of what their out, outward circumstance is, but when it comes to me, it was like, no, you don't understand. Like, I, I get the benefit of the doubt because this is what I really meant. God's standard doesn't really work that way at all. Um, when people talk about divorce and remarriage, they often highlight it as the unpardonable sin. Has anybody heard this before? It's almost like the stain that can't get away, and that's, that's, that's not true at all. I think one of the things that leads us into where we're at today is how marriage is regarded in our society as a whole, right? Uh, for us that are Bible-believing Christians, we believe that there's a biblical view on marriage, that, that it's God that's the center of a marriage when two people come together. It, it's not to be taken lightly. But I also want to highlight that I think there has been some things that have hurt marriage over the years. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame one right now, Disney, all right? This is my personal view. This isn't anybody else's personal view, but I believe Disney has done more harm to marriages than anything else because of these few little words. And I wonder if anybody knows what I'm going to say. Happily ever after, right? The idea is there's this big thing and somebody meets so-and-so and then they break up along the way and then at the end it's happily ever after and the picture fades out, right? When we know what happens is it's happily ever after and then you go home and you wake up next to the person and you live life and then eventually you see the person doing something and you're like, hey, uh, I, I don't like how you fold socks. <laughs> And then eventually, uh, you hear it from people all the time, and then eventually it could be, you know, I, I, I don't like you, you know? Um, what, what happens is people come together that, that become broken along the way. And when we live in proximity with each other, there's friction that happens. And out of the brokenness that's going on inside my own heart, there, there, there's poor relationship skills that I have with other people along the way. Nothing is ever happily ever after. We can all agree that things are so much better when there's no challenges, right? Like, I'm, I'm a fan of the saying, man, life would be great if there was no people, right? And then you're like, well, wait a second, life would be horrible if there was no people. Like, the best things that have happened in my life has, be, has been because of other people, right? But the most damaging things in my life has happened because of people. Murder, adultery, all these things literally... Uh, destroy lives, tear apart people, damage people for life. Uh, people hurting other people damage people for life. And it influences so many other things in our society. And, and, and even me, I mean, be, 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 uh, before I was saved, I, I have a daughter who's 14 years old, and, and, and my daughter was born in drug addiction because of our poor choices. And her mom died from a heroin overdose, and we weren't married like... My, because of my poor actions, it caused sin and friction down the line. And I can tell you of my friends and family members that have lived coming out of divorce, and I think some of us have come from that realm to know the heartbreak that happens inside of it. That's not part of God's plan. He loves people so much, he doesn't want anybody to feel the pain and the heartache that comes along inside this world. We forget that sin, right, caused separation between man and God. And it's okay to call things sin when they are. But I want to highlight something. There's only one unpardonable sin. It's not an excuse to go out and do whatever it is we want to do. But it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's the denial of something when the Holy Spirit moves upon a heart to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. People have an opportunity to deny that. Jesus said everything will be forgiven, even blasphemy against his name. But this one thing won't. That's the only unpardonable sin we see. God loves when people come and repent. As a matter of fact, the Word of God says, all of heaven stops and rejoices when one sinner repents. Do you guys, you guys know that? Everything. So churches differ on this information. They lean side to side on this. Um, Moses takes an interesting point of view in Matthew 19 when, when, when Jesus is trying to, uh, when the Pharisees are trying to press Jesus on the issue, he said to them, Moses because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but it was not so from the beginning. We already talked about this. God developed the standard from the beginning. But God knew that because of broken people, and like Jay Adams said, uh, it's because the sin that's behind it. But not every divorce is sinful. Um, so 
God recognizes that divorce is necessary in situations along the way. And it doesn't mean that it was condoned or commanded as they interpret it, right? They looked at these verses as it was a command that I, that I had to do these things. I had to divorce my wife. Um, what I look at, God's permission for allowing these things as the ultimate act of grace and mercy inside of our lives. But does everybody understand there was a death penalty for adultery? That's how serious God took it. Somewhere along the way, they never really instituted uh, that death penalty. That's why they bring uh, the woman caught in adultery, not the man, by the way, the woman brought in adultery. They bring her to Jesus so Jesus would stone her. They didn't stone people for this anymore. That's why it, a divorce was instituted along, along the way. And like I said, a lot of these people that were bringing the woman uh, in, in, in adultery uh, to Jesus, these were people that had 10 or 15 wives down the way. Marriage reflects God's relationship with man. And we're here, God is with us to navigate life, not to beat us up in any way possible. So Jesus is really addressing a very sticky issue of the day, particularly the oral traditions behind that. Does everybody understand that? And I just want to put it out there, if anybody has more questions on this topic, I'd be willing to go much deeper. We can talk at another time. This is... Uh, this topic alone, we could spend an all-day seminar on here. But I know this. The Word of God says, for by grace you have been saved, through faith, not of ourself, the gift by God, lest anyone can boast. Our God loves to forgive people that come and confess along the way. And, and that's the heart behind it. Jesus moves into the next set of scriptures in Matthew 33, and it says again, you have heard that was said from those of old. This is a saying we see repeated over and over. Jesus is addressing, you've heard it said, you've heard it said from days of old. You heard an expounding on an oral tradition that you shall not fare falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, not by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by the head, because you cannot make your one hair white or your one hair black. I don't think they had hair dye like they do today. I saw a girl with purple hair on the way up. But, um, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever, whatever is more than these is from the evil one. We're going to talk about the spiritual credibility gap for a few moments. Um, does everybody know the whole world is based on a system of lies? <laughs> Here's a quote. So much business, politics, government, and education, uh, the educational system, science, religion, and even family life is built on falsehoods and half-truth. That it, 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 if a sudden revelation of the whole truth, it would cause the entire society to break down and fall apart. <laughs> Do you guys understand that? If truth was really truth in every single situation, everything would cease to exist anymore. You know, just imagine numbers being padded over in this situation and so-and-so telling a lie about being in a certain place in a certain time. Um, everything would fall apart. Jesus is addressing traditions that come out of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And just so everybody knows, Leviticus is where uh, Exodus, when they're coming out, out of uh, the Exodus, the departure, coming out of Egypt, God lays down some base laws, the Ten Commandments inside that. When he gets into the Leviticus, he lays out the entire law. Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law from Leviticus because they spent a generation, well, spent a generation out in the wilderness. Um, so a lot of times you're going to see something in Leviticus, you're going to see it come up in Deuteronomy as well. But I found this is the best verse, I think, that addresses anything that has to do with, with oaths. And it might not be the most fun topic to talk about, but check this out. Hebrews 6.16 says, Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. So here's the problem that they're addressing of the day. People were just throwing oaths out on anything. I swear. I swear by Jerusalem. You know, I swear by the great city. I swear by uh, Pastor Bob. You know, I, I swear by whoever. They're just throwing false out there. Uh, oaths out there to kind of get what they want along the way. Remember that old saying, give me a burger today and I'll pay you on Tuesday? You know, th that whole thing comes out of that. The, the rabbinical tradition that happened out of this was 
was, was actually lowering God's name. And the idea was they said, I'm only going to make oaths, I'm only going to obey oaths that are sworn by God's name, and any other commitment I make in this world uh, is kind of not going to be binding in any way. So instead of calling and looking at God's word and saying, here's a divine standard that's been set, what we do as sinful people, and they did it in those days, and, and people do it in our society, say, well, well, that might be something cool, a cool idea to live, but I'm actually going to make my own standards on how to live. And I think that's incredibly dangerous, especially for us inside the body of Christ. An oath in any way is not to be taken lightly. And what happens is they actually missed a few ingredients of what they were doing. So there, there, there's a proper circumstance to take an oath, Right? The big one coming out of this was there was this marriage covenant. That, that's an oath you take before God and man to, to follow through with a commitment. It's, it's very serious. It becomes binding. Um, if we don't, you understand, it, it's a lie. We didn't follow through on what we said we were going to do. And, and, and we see in, in this day a lot of businesses conducted this way, right? People are like, well, I signed a contract. Well, then you're breaking the contract by not doing X, Y, and Z. That, that's the root of this. What he ends up saying is, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I'm going to tell you why. At the end of the day, the only thing I'm ever going to have is my word, right? What he's talking about is being a person of character. If I'm a person of character, I'm never going to need to swear on anything. Because my yes is already a yes and my no is already a no. We're talking about character and integrity that's built in, into the heart. The challenge on the other side when we're looking at, at oaths is I can decide that I'm the judge and the jury and the executioner, right? Each one has gone astray. What happens in, in judges is everybody has become their own judge deciding between good and evil. And God's saying, no, 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 guys. Jesus is saying, guys, don't go down this road. There's a standard we've set, a divine standard on how we're supposed to live, on how we're supposed to operate. It's already been laid out for you. The whole, the, the law is very, very spiritual. It's meant to be boundaries for life. Hey guys, here's the boundaries. Operate inside here. So what was going on is, is they were perverting the whole system of, of what it meant to have an honest relationship with people. Simply let my yes be yes and my no by no. You know, do you want to do this? No. Okay, thank you for letting me know. But we know what it's meant to be on the other side is, hey, will you help me out in this? Sure, I'll do it. And you wait around, the person never shows up, and vice versa. It, it, it causes more harm than it does good. If I'm a born-again believer and I want to love people, I'm going to honor them with my words and my actions and my commitments to the best of my ability. The idea is that God is involved in everything. <laughs> He's not only concerned about the spiritual things or what's happening at church or maybe if you're at prayer in a Bible study. He cares about every aspect of our life, how we think, and act and, and, and live out life with one another. So we, that was a cool sound. I want to find out what that is after. Verse 38. If you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I want to read out of uh, Leviticus 24, verses 17 through 21 to drive this point home. Leviticus 24, starting at verse 17. Uh, has anybody, everybody's heard this saying before in some way, an eye for, eye for a tooth for a tooth. It, it, it's very, very misunderstood. Verse 17 says this, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal, and the idea is murder, whoever murders any man, not, not killing. We talked about this last week. It was that intent, that personal intent behind this. So whoever kills, whoever murders any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever murders an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes dis disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And he has caused a figurement of a man, so it shall be done for him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. Again, that's murder. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for the one of your own country, for I am the Lord your God. 
quickly from the beginning, they developed their own standards of what was going to be good for the Jew and good for the Gentile, the outsider. And, and it kind of stayed that way. They created a country club, and, and many of us can do this today in certain cliques. What happened in here, simply put, that this law said uh, requires punishment to fit the crime. Super important. It's part of our criminal justice system today. Meaning if somebody comes over and punches me in the arm, I don't have the right to get a baseball bat and smash their head in. There, 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 there needs to be a, a, a proper punishment to fit the crime. And God establishes from the beginning for a few reasons. One, to stop further crime, right? So I do something to intentionally cause somebody and then that has to happen to me. Guess what my friends are going to think? Man, why are you missing an eye? Well, let me tell you what I did all the rest of my days. Then everybody gets to know what's going on. The second was to prevent excessive punishment or this word we like to call retaliation. Uh, and, and believe me, we're going to talk about retaliation a little bit further when we get into this. Um, and, and I can't say it enough how we judge other people based off their actions and us based off our intentions. The heart of God was to really prevent any type of emotional response that was overbearing. And I don't know about you, but I'm way more emotional when uh, there's pain involved, you know? Like, I'm a big guy, right? But I stub my toe, everything changes, you know? Uh, um, the idea is, uh, and I read this earlier, somebody said that when it comes to my sinful nature, I want to pound the flesh for an ounce of effect, you know, for an ounce of, a, of offense against me. This person cut me off. Oh, they should be sent to jail forever. Like, anybody feel frustrated when you're driving? Oh, I'm the only one in the entire room. Okay. But ultimately, God says, vengeance is mine. And we tend to forget that, 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 that part of me living in this world and knows that I can take judgment in my own hands and I can cause something to happen instead of sitting back and really saying, no, vengeance really belongs to the Lord. You we're going to see in a few late verses down, it says, does not the rain fall on the just and the unjust? Oh, man, God's a merciful God wooing people into him. Jesus is going to flip the script in a few verses and talk about loving your enemies. Ultimately, like I said, the oral traditions become perverted because of people desiring to be their own judge, jury, and executioner. Remember that when you're in a disagreement with your 14-year-old later on or, or your spouse or, 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 or somebody else that's super close to you. The whole idea was limiting punishment. And he goes on and takes it a step further. He's taking us down a road here. Verse 39 says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the left cheek also, turn the other cheek also. And you're like, whoa, Jesus. And I got you at the adultery thing. You know, I'll take you at this other thing, but now you want me to turn my cheek when somebody's going to hit me? Um, he's really building off the set of verses and, 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 and this idea that personal vengeance belongs to me and it's my responsibility to get it. But he's talking here about personal resentments, personal attacks of people towards other people. Um, we are supposed to resist the enemy when he flees. This is, a, this is identifying a personal attack. Uh, it's it said throughout the New Testament, resist the enemy and he shall flee. Paul writes that we should never pay back evil for evil. We pay back good for evil. Um, we overpower evil with love. He says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one also. Here's an idea. For us as born-again believers, the scriptures say, so you do not do what you want. All right? Anybody here in a frustrating situation that you wanted to do something that you didn't this week? Yeah. Um, if someone hits me, my first natural reaction is to do what? Yeah, hit them back, right? Anybody hang out with toddlers lately? Like, that's what happens in the process. But I promise you, it looks weak to the outside world not to retaliate. But I guarantee you, it takes twice as much effort to be able to keep the peace and to hold it back. The stronger person is the one that actually holds back. And this is talking about people attacking our dignity and, and and I love that our God, our Lord and Savior, saying that he became one that suffered all like us. If you ever read through Isaiah, they spat on him. They pulled his beard out. They punched him in the face. They made him bleed. They gave him the worst 
beating anyone has ever taken. They, they, they beat him with cat of nine tails and, and ripped out his skin. And he didn't utter a word. And our Lord and Savior, who's sharing this back with us, back with us was on a cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a guy that I listen to. Hurt people are always going to hurt people. But it's always about the heart behind the action or, 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 or as we see, self-control. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So just wondering, does anybody here have a tunic or a cloak? No, not a, not a word anybody uses in society today. A tunic was an undergarment, right? Just like an undershirt um, or, or, or your regular shirt that you would wear. The cloak was this outer garment. It was worn like a cloak, uh, like a coat, and it could be used as a blanket at night. So the idea was like a one-stop shop travel, right? Most likely you might have had one or two undershirts, but most people only ever had one coat or one cloak. What happens is if you let somebody borrow it, there's actually a law in, in Exodus 22, verses 26 through 27, that commands that it gets returned to the next person by sundown. So just to clarify, Jesus isn't talking about getting jacked by somebody or getting robbed. I think it's really easy to see this. Well, if somebody wants to come and steal my tunic, I'm supposed to give them my coat too. Like, what am I supposed to do? Walk around shirtless for the rest of the day? Like, that might harm other people seeing that in my life. Like, this is not a good thing. <laughs> Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying if someone has a right cause to sue you, if there's a cause inside that, you would have no money or no possessions. What they could legally do is take away your only possessions that you had left. That was the state of the, day, state of the day. Jesus is saying in God's kingdom, we have a different attitude for us, how we live and walk on this world. What he's saying is, listen, if you messed up something, be willing to make it right and be willing to go above and beyond. I, listen, I messed up. I got to own this. The, the penalty is for me to pay, I'd be willing to pay double. I think the coolest instance we have of this is Zacchaeus, right? I'm writing as Zacchaeus, and my wife saw it, and she goes, oh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, so it said in Scripture. But this guy had the biggest heart of them all. When Jesus came to his house that day, he said, he said I'll give back everybody, fold upon fold upon fold, everything plus more. I just want to make it right. I want to be free from this behind it. There was an attitude that changed in his heart that day, and he's saying, no longer am I going to be this guy. I just want to make it right and go above and beyond. I bet Zacchaeus slept great that night, being free from that bondage of, of, of being able to exhort, uh, being able to take advantage of people day in and day out. By doing things like this, I'm com completely trusting God and saying, God, I trust you with my security. I'm trusting you to be the one to take care of me. We have something called the Sabbath, and, 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 and in the Sabbath, um, it, it's almost like we have to trust God for the lack of working. Well, God, if I do more, I'll be able to accomplish more. God's saying, no, I want you to do less and depend and trust on me. Whoever compels you to go one mile with him, go to. Uh, kingdom citizens should have the choice uh, to operate freely. In that day, they were under Roman occupation. Not a good thing. Rome restricted their rules and everything. A soldier could come and tap you on the shoulder with their knife or their spear and command at you. You had to legally carry their garment, their instrument, their bag. It could be their weapons. Maybe those weapons were going to be used against you, but you were commanded to, to do it. Jesus say, no, if they do that, go the extra mile. I bet somebody would have to ask you why you would do that. Guess what happened? A personal witness and a testimony. Why would you open the door for me? Why would you want to pick up trash? That doesn't belong to you. These things that we can do to go the extra mile are supposed to be a witness and a testimony back to the other people. And we don't have to wait for a response. We just do it to, out of love to grab other people's attention. Going above and beyond always gives us freedom. In verse 2 he says, Give him who asks from you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, Here's a disclaimer inside this. It can be easily misunderstood that Christians are supposed to be doormats, right? You're like, well, first I'm supposed to, you know, get punched in the face, and now I'm supposed to give my clothes away, and now if somebody comes to me, 
I'm, I'm supposed to just give everything I have, so now I'm punched in the face, I don't have any clothes, now we don't have any money. You're like, you're like, what type of God is this that we're following? Jesus isn't saying become the doormat for society. He's addressing that, man, if there's people in real need that are around you, help them out. Generally help them out. Like, literally love people and have the desire in your heart to help someone else out. Now, for 10 years, um, I, I, I worked at City Team in Chester, and, and my privilege was to be able to serve people coming out of homelessness and drug addiction and people in dangerous situations. And, and out of that, I developed some rules and some structures and some guidelines on how to do this for me, for my personal life. The first rule was establish rules. The second one was be willing to break your own rules, all right? I'm just being honest because my rule is not to give anybody money. My rule is to spend time with people. You can ask my wife and the people that go out with me, we'll stop anywhere and talk to somebody, get somebody food, minister them, hang out, look them in the eye and have a legit conversation with somebody. But sometimes you're going to have to break your own rule. See, we read a, I, I, one of the ministries that I had the privilege of leading gave out food boxes to the people in the community. And it wasn't my job to judge to see if someone was in need or not in need. What he's saying is if you give, trust that it's on God. It's God's responsibility outside of this to judge if that person is using this for good or for not. Does that make sense? It's about the heart behind it. You know, I'll give and say, you know what, God, that's on you. I'll let you handle that. That person has to answer to you just like I have to answer to God for the situation that I've been going through. Um, like I said, these are great ways to get people's attention and to share the gospel inside what we do. Um, 43, he breaks out and says, you have heard it said, this phrase that comes up over and over again, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. Again, he's dressing the oral tradition. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And what we like to say is God has a standard for humanity, right? He has a standard for what life should actually look like, how we're supposed to communicate, how we're supposed to love one another. Um, the problem Jesus is addressing, again, is upholding the law. And, and, and what he does is he's like, I'm, I'm going to fulfill the law right here and right now inside of it. And it actually destroys the oral tradition in every way. What the, what the Pharisees did is they added this saying, your enemy. It's not there. Go look it up at another time. But love your neighbor literally means love your neighbor no matter what color they are, no matter what background they are, no matter what demographic there was. Jews typically only looked out for the Jews, but anything was a Gentile was unclean. They wanted nothing to do with them. And maybe some of us have people like that in our life where we said, you know what, these group of people or, or this person or my ex or, or whoever it may be is cut off for me. And God's saying, no, no. You heard other people say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that, the, the, the real verse comes out of Leviticus 19 if you want to look it up. 44, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus uses this phrase throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount of your Father. It's used in a way that nobody has used before, identifying that I can have a personal relationship with God. What do you mean, my father? No, it, it, it's, it's God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It was always somebody else. Jesus referred to him as my father. That there was this personal connection. But the fulfillment of love, of, of, of the law, the fulfillment of anything ultimately is going to be love. This is the most powerful teaching in Scripture. There's four types of love. Uh, phila, which, which, which we should all know is brotherly love. Uh, Philadelphia means brotherly love. Now, I don't know if anybody spent time in the city, um, but I promise you it means brotherly love. means friendship. Uh, storge means love for family. Eros means romantic or sexual love. The word he uses here is agape. Agape is unconditional love. Zero conditions. It's first... Corinthians 13, love. Love keeps no records of wrong. Love, love doesn't boast. 
what it breaks down to is love is always in the best interest of others. And I don't know if anybody can remember what it was like to be in that relationship for the first time, having fallen in love. The only thing you care about is that other person. You feel it in your bones and in your heart. That, that type of love where there's zero conditions on side of it. What God's saying is this is my love for eternity. Where, where, where you're going to be a person that might feel unconditional love for a season. Base it off of truth. Romans 5.8 says, For God demonstrates his love towards us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Talk about that love. No greater love than this, than to lay down your life for your friends. Um, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies above anything else is the story behind the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he expounds on this and says, 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Even the tax collectors do so. You know when I really need to love people? It's easy to love people when they love you. It's hard to love people when it's an aggravating, frustrating situation. This is why part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is this. But the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence, it's singular, it's supernatural. Galatians 5.22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And I'm talking about long-suffering. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Above all these things, there is no law whatsoever. What he's saying is your love should be so supernatural that it grasps other people's attention, even if they're coming to persecute you. By the way, they talked about Jesus, they're going to talk about you too. And that's okay. Bless people, don't curse them. It's the best testimony we can ever have. Somebody punches me in the face, and the only thing I can say is, I love you, and I want to tell you about how I was forgiven by a Savior. It's easy to talk about, right? That's why we have this supernatural thing called the fruit of the Spirit supposed to be supernatural. I need to love my daughter when she's yelling at me because she's 14 years old, right? I need to love her in that moment. I'm just trying to get you guys, whatever that most frustrating situation you have, it's like, God, this is when I need to ex exercise this love. It's easy to love my wife, and it's easy to love my son in, in challenging, in, in, in good situations. It's harder to make that decision and choice when there's friction involved in the process. He rests on this verse in 48 and says, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect in heaven. Jesus recognized there's the idea of how God called us to live and the way people actually have been living. The heartbreaking part was his own people, Israel, who, who, who he called adulterous people. We see it play out through the prophets time in and time out. There's a prophet, Hosea, that God gave the command to actually go and marry a harlot, a prostitute, that would actually leave him and go out and prostitute herself. And then eventually at the end, God commands Hosea to go back while she's in what she's doing and to purchase her back upon himself. This idea that God is faithful through what's ever happening, knowing that man set a standard that was going to be completely opposite of how God calls people to live. He said... Even the tax collectors, the people that are part of you, that look to cheat, rob, and steal, and they're, and they're supposed to be looking out for your best interests, he's saying they're doing the same things that you're doing, and you think you're different. You want to be different? Don't talk about it. Actually be about it. Love people in a unique way. And by the way, you have to be perfect. My standard is perfection. That is the only standard that's going to stand, that always has stand, that always will stand, is Jesus Christ and him crucified directly from the beginning. This word uh, uh, used for perfect translates to really mean um, to reach an intended end or, or, or completion. And, and it's where we, we, we get the term today, mature, full, reaching full maturity. But it's so much more than that, the way God is using it here, the way Jesus is using it here. Be perfect, for your, fa your heavenly Father is perfect. 
He's resetting the standard that it's not based off my personal code or the idea how I think things should be. It's based off a standard that God has already established. It's in the Word of God. Every single one of us has access to that. And if you're a born-again believer, the Spirit of God should dwell inside you and govern us along the way. The challenge is, am I heeding to the Holy Spirit or am I moving by the desires of my flesh? These are the same questions I ask myself every single day. God, am I going to be moved by your spirit today, or am I going to be moved by my flesh? Revelation 12, 11 said they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the power of their testimony. And everybody forgets the next part. And they love their lives not unto the end. The idea is I'm loving him more than my personal life, and if I do that, I'm going to reach the lost neighbor in this world. And somehow... When I'm caring more about God's business and I'm loving other people, somehow that leaves me more filled. And I don't know if anybody else has figured this out. The more time I spend investing in me and like I, I need me time, it's almost like I'm trying to fill myself and then I'm left more empty at the end. He's saying, no, listen, my burden is light. You've lived in a broken system. People have told you you've sucked and stank for years. I don't even know if that's a word, stunk, stank. But you guys know what I'm saying. He's saying, I have rest inside of you. I'm calling you to live a different lifestyle. And by the way, I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to empower myself through you. We call sin, sin. We, 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 we get alone and, and we repent. We get into the scriptures and read how to live. So um, I'm going to ask Emily to come forward. And as we do, I want to ask for everybody to think of a personal challenge, how to challenge yourself over this week as a result of hearing this message. Is there something that maybe struck a nerve? Did, did, did God highlight a sore spot? Maybe there's a word that stuck out along the way that you could take and leave here tonight and, and, and put a step of action in. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we would love to pray with you. If you need counsel or you need to talk, we want to be able to walk life out with you. I share often, we just don't want to walk life through the good times. We want to be able to navigate the difficult, challenging times with one another. That's why we're here. We get to do this as a family, and that's what the body of Christ is. For me, my commitment this week uh, with my discipleship group was to make sure I'm, I'm spending personal time in prayer and that each day I'm doing a constant evaluation of how I'm living and where is my heart behind these things? And if I have to make a confession, confess it. If I have to make something right, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to go above and beyond and do that this week. Guys, read ahead. Pastor Bob will be back with you guys next week. It's been great worshiping with you. Please stand. <laughs>